You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloo, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Luke. This episode comes to you from the Reservoir Center for Water Solutions in Washington, D.C., where Waterloop is a media partner. This episode is also part of a series, Funding to Fight Lead. A group of experts from government, banking, and advocacy recently gathered at the Reservoir Center in Washington, D.C. to discuss funding options and opportunities and how to advance the work. This episode features presentations from the event on topics including federal loan programs, activities at the municipal level, technical assistance for communities, use of bond financing, and resources to navigate funding. Before starting the episode, I want to quickly mention that Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet that depends on supporters. This episode is made possible by Water PIO, Blue Conduit, and 120 Water. I'll briefly talk about the ways they make a difference on lead and then start the conversation. This episode is sponsored by Blue Conduit. Blue Conduit is a water analytics company that has developed a cutting edge, predictive machine learning approach to locate lead service lines, empowering local officials and their engineering partners with the information to efficiently remove those pipes. The company's solutions enable utilities to focus their resources on digging where the lead is accelerating the removal of this significant health concern and saving millions of dollars in avoided digs. Since 2016, the Blue Conduit team has worked with more than 100 municipalities and inventoried over 1.8 million service lines, which serve more than 4 million people. Visit blueconduit.com. This episode is sponsored by 120 Water. 120 Water is the only end-to-end solution for implementing the lead and copper rule revisions. They currently work with over 600 water systems, ranging from rural water communities that serve less than 3,000 people to major cities like Denver, Pittsburgh, and Newark. They also manage city and statewide drinking water programs, such as lead in schools and daycares. 120 Water is a digital water platform with cloud-based software, products such as water testing kits, lead validation kits, and remediation kits, and services that water systems and state agencies use to execute water quality programs. Learn more at 120water.com. This episode is sponsored by leadcopperrule.com. The lead and copper rule doesn't just create compliance challenges for water utilities, it also creates several public information flashpoints that put the reputations of utilities at risk. LeadCopperRule.com can help your utility stay ahead of the lead and copper rule for years to come. Their proven communication plans and products are ready in an instant, and their expert staff can guide your response to any lead information emergency. Be ready to protect the public's trust in your water from day one. Visit leadcopperrule.com today to set up your free initial consultation. The first speaker is Anita Tompkins, Director of Drinking Water Infrastructure Division at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She talks about EPA's work on lead line replacement, including through the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund 
and efforts to improve the definitions of disadvantaged communities, particularly for using the $15 billion from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The Drinking Water State Revolving Fund Program is a, a federal state program that provides below interest rate market loans to public water systems to help them with infrastructure development, whether it's improvement, the expansion, rehabilitation. EPA provides guidelines, implementation direction. There's statutes that you gotta follow, but each state gets to actually manage the program based on their state's needs. And, and then the EPA provides the seed money to the state. The state uses that money to provide uh, funding to different water systems that apply. There's a whole application process. And then the, uh, the that utility or that public water system applies to the state. The state gives them the money, invoice, and it, go, and it, it goes that way. It's called revolving because when EPA provides the seed money to the state, it does that money does not come back to EPA. It stays in the state's coffers, I call it. And that money can only be used for drink water state revolving fund eligible uses. And that's why we call it the drink water state revolving fund. And because there, it's managed by the state, we have 50 states plus what we call, we include Puerto Rico, they actually have a SRF program as well. There's 51 different flavors of the SRF programs that are out there. That's how I would say that. Because with how the statute, the State Drinking Water Act statute is written, every state gets to determine what would be, what they consider the definition for their disadvantaged and so when most, a lot of this bipartisan infrastructure law money that came out, 49% is targeted to disadvantaged communities, every state has their own definition. And we have been encouraging states and a lot of states have actually looked at their definition and say, how can we improve our definition so we're getting to those communities that have not had the opportunity. So we applaud the states that have done that and states are still continuing to roll up their sleeves to do that. So the states understand this is a public health protection program. And as we've all heard and Candace said, no level of lead is accept acceptable. And it's up to us to make sure we can use all these funds to leverage them with other agencies. Because as Candace mentioned, there's still 9.2 million lead lines out there. 15 billion that EPA got um, over the next five years is still not enough money, but other agencies receive money. How can we leverage as a whole federal space NGO space as well as state space to make sure we get these lead lines out of these communities, especially the communities that are most vulnerable. EPA right, right now, our focus is providing direct technical assistance to communities working with our state partners to make sure they understand how to do inventories, how to strategically plan, because they need to understand to do an inventory to understand what kind of lead lines they have, if they have lead lines, correct? That's a big undertaking. And then once they understand that, what's the strategy? They need a preliminary engineer report. How are they gonna get an engineer, right? So there's a lot of things that these small communities need to do in order to even compete, to even put in that application to even get this, these funds. So what we have been doing and working with our states and various stakeholders, really focusing on this direct technical assistance. 
And Candace mentioned the lead service line accelerators. That's one aspect, as well as working with our environmental finance centers to provide this direct technical assistance, whether it's engineering help, whether it's just planning strategy, and also community outreach. We're working with our, our, our other, other partners, NGOs, to help with community outreach. Because sometimes some communities are weary about federal government coming in to do something, right? But we need to make sure they understand what, what the federal government is able to do and then have that community outreach. And that's why we partner with so many other uh, stakeholders that they can help us with that because education is key. Money that goes to the states that EPA provides as seed money is based on what they call a need survey. This particular uh, need survey that we did, this was the first time that we asked questions on lead service line material. We asked these drinking water systems, do you know what your, what your service line material is? And in this need survey that went out, and uh, we actually got the allotment for fiscal year 23 on the funds, we were able to do a separate lead service line allotment to make sure the monies for this lead service line was going to the, the states that had the most Either they knew their material was lead or they had unknown. And so, as they said, direct the money to where it needs to go. Just like we know, Chicago has a lot of lead service lines. So we're really looking at how to get the money to where it's needed and using the various tools that EPA has, as well as all the tools that we've developed to make sure that happens. The focus now is really on that direct technical assistance um, to make sure these communities know about this opportunity, feel safe and comfortable from an outreach and education purpose, so we can make sure that we can get these lead lines out of the ground to protect our children and protect us as adults and protect public health all the way around. Next is Tom Neltner, Senior Director of Safer Chemicals at the Environmental Defense Fund, who has worked on lead for 25 years. He discusses the importance, benefits, and urgency of getting lead lines out of the ground. Tom also says that a variety of financing options will be needed to finish the work. It's exciting to see this kind of investment in reducing lead and drinking water. And I want to say we've been talking about the $15 billion, but we also have to recognize there's an $11.7 billion for general infrastructure money that can be used for lead service line replacement. And in fact, a lot of that money is going to replacing water mains. And attached to those water mains are lead service lines. So I'm really proud of EPA for making clear, although I would always like it to be made clearer, that anytime you use that 11.7 billion to touch a water main with the lead pipe on it, you also fully replace the lead service line. Now, I would love for us not to have to have a rule to force utilities to do it, but what we've seen in the states and at the locals, that there are a lot of cities leading the way, but it's not enough to reach the goal of eliminating 9.2 million lead service lines. It's gonna have to take a rule to make that happen. And that's why it's exciting to hear that the rule will be finalized by um, a year and a half from now, by the end of next year. What we've got to do now is also recognize that this 15 billion plus the 11.7, as much as we can leverage, is not going to solve it all. It's not just how do we make sure that the SRF money gets out there, that we leverage all of the SRF, we leverage WIFIA, we do everything possible, but that we also recognize cities are going to have to get other financing. 
And we need to figure out how to leverage the bond market, how to leverage the ESG market, the environmental and sustainable governance market, market because if you, if you can't come, that, this is a perfect case. So how do we help the cities get the political will and the leadership to be able to rate, to do the rate increases, to get the financing, and to spread that out so it's as small as possible, and to support those communities that can't afford it in order to get this and all the other infrastructure improvements. What I see too often are utilities that say, well, I only own the part that's on public, on public property. I'm only responsible for that. How many people bought their homes wanting a lead pipe? How many people even knew whether they had a lead pipe on their home? Most people don't even care about it. It's part of the water utility. It's the drinking water line. And what we see is water utilities saying, our responsibility stops at the curb. And that's just not right. I understand how it's always been framed that way. The evidence from American Water, from Cincinnati and other places, have shown that it costs more money. Come in, do the job at once. It's going to be the most efficient. We don't want to waste this $15 billion. Second, it's an injustice. So if you, we did a study in DC water, wealthy people will pay. It's not surprising. They know lead's bad. Almost everybody knows lead's bad. But who doesn't pay? Low-income people. So you end up with discrimination based on income. And unfortunately, in many, many, many of our communities that have historically been under, the communities of color have been historically discriminated against with underinvestment, with discrimination, that asking people, there's a correlation between income and race in those communities. So it also is a civil rights issue. So we're talking about civil rights. We're talking about children's health. We're talking about building good jobs. And all of that tells us that we, not, we need to get these pipes out of the ground and where if Congress isn't willing to step up with some more money, we need to find the financing other ways. The local perspective is provided by Carolyn Baer, Legislative Director for Sustainability at the National League of Cities. She shares how lead line replacement fits within the priorities of municipalities and some ways that cities are moving forward on projects. We have a local government ARPA investment tracker. This is something that National League of Cities keeps with our um, county association and Brookings. And so I pulled some examples here for cities that are using some of their state and local fiscal recovery funds on lead and pipe uh, replacement. And then there are so many others uh, that are taking action across the country. So I only could pick one to fit on the slide here. Um, but Ashland, was, um, Wisconsin has a multi-year private lead service line replacement program. They're covering 100% um, from the city, and this is through the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund and prioritizing households uh, with children and, and low income. So as we're talking about equity and affordability concerns, there are some uh, considerations that local leaders are thinking about, um, really in terms of, as Tom was talking about, so first is that funding mechanism. Where is that going to come from, from low income homeowners? Uh, you want to ensure that rental homes are a priority in the lead pipe replacement programs. Um, affordability overall for water utility rates.
rates, and this goes to all of the requirements that local leaders um, and water utilities are, are faced with. Sequencing the lead service line replacement, um, doing those vulnerable neighborhoods and, and dry environmental justice communities first, and obviously community engagement. Um, this is about communication about lead exposure risks. They may not understand that. Advanced notice of construction disruptions may not be an obvious thing um, to, to share out. Some of the states prevent charging different rates uh, within the rate payer class, meaning you can charge residential one rate and commercial one rate. Um, but not necessarily differentiating within that class or prevent from using public debt for a private, uh, personal, individual benefit. Um, and of course, reaching those rental populations when you're talking about uh, landlords, uh, so water and energy improvements, we've seen challenges on this as well. Uh, workforce development, I think, is a challenge and an opportunity here. Um, you know, it's an infrastructure replacement jobs are a big workforce and opportunity in communities, but at the same time, we know we have a workforce and infrastructure needs gap in the country. Um, and investing in an at scale in our workforce development and training programs continues to be a top priority for the National League. Um, and we also have an opportunity for community partner engagement. Um, this is about building trust as well. Uh, so public health centers, community centers, organizations that serve BIPOC communities and low income and other vulnerable populations. So an opportunity for cross-departmental coordination on infrastructure projects. Um, Syracuse is an example of this, um, setting up a dig once policy so that you have strategic delivery of your local capital investments and improvements. Um, and then technical assistance, we have think talked about maybe the first two of these, the um, EPA lead service line replacement accelerators, the environmental finance centers, and a new environmental justice thriving communities technical assistance program. Um, I'm pleased to say that National League of Cities has partnered with ICMA uh, and a few others um, to be offering this technical assistance specifically in environmental justice communities in terms of accessing um, these water infrastructure investment opportunities. And I'd be remiss if we're talking about technical assistance to not mention the local infrastructure hub, um, which is in partnership with Bloomberg Philanthropies. And it's a really a way that we hope to change the map of who, which communities have access to federal funds, which communities receive those grant programs, those grant dollars. Uh, we have identified 30 programs from the bipartisan infrastructure law and working over a series of phases to walk communities through every step of the way um, in the application process. Removal of the nation's estimated 9 million lead service lines will likely require funding beyond that provided by the federal government. The ability for utilities to use bond financing to pay for work on private property, as done by Denver Water, is explained by Cynthia Kohler. Executive Director at the Water Now Alliance. There are about 9.2 million lead lines in the United States with an estimated replacement cost of between 45 and 90 billion. The new federal grant and loan programs that we've been talking about will be a tremendous boon to thousands of cities and towns, in particular for historically disadvantaged communities. But as we've also heard, these programs will not be close to enough and there will be a real need for cities, towns, and public utilities to bring additional capital resources to bear. 
In this respect, many, if not most, um, communities need to start thinking now about how to um, include the cost of replacing private lead lines in their capital planning, budgeting, and financing. The good news is that for the most part, this is doable and cost effective. The challenge is that it involves changing up our thinking about whether and how to invest public dollars on private property. While there are often concerns around public debt, and to be clear, this will not be an answer for every community, low-cost borrowing can be a very uh, cost-effective, affordable, and equitable approach. Indeed, this is the reason that most utilities nationwide, um, at least the 8,000 or so that serve over 90% of the population, um, often turn to capital markets to finance their conventional water infrastructure. So it's not a new idea. However, the notion of using public debt for installations on private property raises a host of issues that can be challenging for public entities, utilities, cities, and towns, which must work within a complex web of accounting rules, public finance, and tax laws designed to ensure that public dollars do not confer private benefits. However, the takeaway that I hope to leave you with today is that these systems of laws and rules can, and often do, allow municipalities to borrow and to use rate revenues to pay for private lead service line replacements. Before issuing debt, water agencies have to pass through three gates. First, do you have legal authority? Um, this is where the conversation around lead line replacements often begins and ends, usually with no. But the relevant state laws are often not the barriers that they are perceived to be. For example, every state has some kind of prohibition against gifts of public funds. However, these same states, um, all, virtually all of them, um, have very substantial exceptions, including um, for public health and safety. Similarly, state revenue bond statutes are often written broadly to empower borrowing to pay for elements that benefit or support uh, water systems. For example, the state of Illinois defines waterworks eligible for public funding as um, in addition to conventional water infrastructure, all other elements useful in connection with a water supply or water distribution system. Uh, it would be very hard to argue that replacing lead lines is not a useful element of a water system. The other category of legal impediments can be the rules that some cities and counties have written for themselves about how and when public dollars can be used in conjunction with private property. But those rules are well within their, um, their own control to modify, and it is a relatively easy fix to define red lines as part of the permissible elements of a water system. Indeed, most public water providers are already providing some kind of financial benefits to private property owners um, in one form or another. For example, rebates, rebates or financial incentives for various decentralized water strategies, um, like water efficiency measures or green infrastructure. The second gate is whether the public water provider plans for the appropriate accounting treatment. The conventional thinking is that utilities can only borrow to finance fixed assets that they own or control. The Governmental Accounting Standards Board, or GASB, has established an alternative method that allows cities, towns, and water districts to book debt without the ownership and control requirement. And five years ago, GASB took the additional step um, of issuing technical guidance specifically for public water providers. Um, clarifying that this alternative accounting method can be used in connection with capitalizing spending on private property. So to oversimplify somewhat, accounting rules for governmental entities are simply not a barrier to utility financing for lead line replacements on private properties. And finally, most public entities like to issue bonds that are tax-free for their investors. Um, the IRS rules governing tax-free bonds for conventional infrastructure apply the same way for private lead line replacements. 
Denver Water is a as an example of a major water provider that is replacing its um, lead lines, including all of its private lead lines, in, um, with municipal bond financing. Of course, after maximizing its the available federal and state grant and loan forgiveness opportunities. Denver has between 64 and 84,000 private lead lines across its service area. It decided that replacing all of its lead lines, including on private property, was going to be the most cost-effective um, method to, to go from a, uh, and of course addressing um, public health, but the most cost-effective approach for its community. But the challenge was how to pay for it in light of the private property issues. We'd been working at Water Now with Denver on these issues related primarily to um, water use efficiency and pointed out that the same uh, issues could be brought to bear for lead line replacements. Um, and they eventually concluded that that was correct. They also found that there were no state or local legal impediments along the lines of the discussion we just had. So their program is now underway and aims to replace all of the lead lines at no direct cost to um, customers within 15 years. And speed and scale are the issues here. Um, another uh, city with also a very large number of private lead lines is relying entirely on grant and loan programs. And by contracts, its best estimate is that it will replace 700 lines annually. Denver's doing 5,000. And that really is um, you know, one of the major benefits of going this route. So just very quickly, for communities that cannot rely entirely on um, grants or forgiven loans, there are a number of benefits to debt financing for private line replacements. First, low-cost borrowing options um, are, in most cases, um, very affordable, even with the recent rise in interest rates. Spreading those costs over decades keeps rates far lower than trying to pay for these programs out of rate increases. As was the case in Denver, the upfront cash enables communities to invest at scale, accelerating these programs and developing a reliable workforce to get the job done. Upfront financing supports public health and safety, obviously, by empowering communities to address these issues far more rapidly. And finally, and I really want to emphasize this point, financing um, for capital financing for lead line replacement also supports intergenerational equity. The principle that current ratepayers should neither shoulder all of the costs for something that will last for many years and benefit future ratepayers, but nor should they defer the costs and place an unfair burden on future ratepayers. Speaking next is Nathan Anderson. Assistant Vice President at the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. He talks about how the replacement of lead lines is a major infrastructure investment and community development issue. Nathan outlines funding issues raised at a recent convening by the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. In Chicago, we're the local branch for our district. Our district has five states in it. We have all of Iowa, and we have parts of Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So each of those states has at least uh, estimated 100,000 lead service lines. Thereabouts, each of the largest cities in those states have at least estimated 50,000 lead service lines. And then Chicago has about 387,000, um, maybe more, lead service lines. Um, so this is a very important infrastructure issue in our district and one that we really want to understand. Uh, and in particular, these lead service lines are concentrated in older housing. And generally, people with low and moderate incomes are more likely to live in places with older housing. And that's where the community development function comes in, which is the function where the Fed tries to understand uh, issues in LMI communities and promote community development. And so at the Chicago Fed, uh, through our community development function, we're trying to serve as a trusted, nonpartisan convener 
and sort of provider of like reliable information. And as part of that, we hosted a convening in November on financing lead service line replacement. Uh, and again, what we tried to do here is to sort of strengthen existing relationships and hopefully create new ones among a diverse set of stakeholders on this issue, both nationally and in our region. And I want to talk about a few of the themes that came out of that convening um, that we kind of continue to, to think about. So the first is I think we got consensus on, um, and there appears to be consensus today, right, that there's billions of dollars of low-cost financing and grants available, uh, and that this is an unprecedented opportunity. However, how do we cover the rest of the cost? So in our district, this is maybe at least 80% in all the states is money that's not going to come from a grant, and it's not going to come from subsidized, like really low market interest rate financing. I've heard two ideas about this. There's other ideas about how to reduce the cost, which is really important. But assuming a fixed cost, what do people talk about? So the first approach is debt. And the main challenge there is how do you reduce the cost of debt to make it more affordable? And ideas that were discussed there were, for example, how do you increase demand for municipal bonds um, that finance lead service line replacement? So one way that people discussed is to try to attract impact investors and ESG investors by including like detailed disclosure in the debt offering documents about who benefits from lead service line replacement, what those benefits might be, commitments to follow up and show those benefits, and that this has potential to attract additional investment, which can reduce interest rates. It's not a guarantee, but it can. If more people want to buy your bond, it, it increases the price of the bond, reduces interest rates. Um, the second avenue was that banks invest a lot of money in water bonds every year. They're a very reliable investment. Um, the Community Reinvestment Act evaluates bank investments and the extent to which they serve all the communities in which they're located, including low and moderate income communities. Uh, and as part of those rules, um, banks can receive credit for community development investments that benefit low and moderate income people. And again, this disclosure could, um, in practice, uh, encourage banks to want to buy these bonds because they want to get a good evaluation under the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, and the keys here, again, are disclosure and data on who benefits. And then finally, the other bucket of things is by far the weirdest uh, and most speculative, and that is the non-debt but not grants bucket. Um, and this is, is there anyone who would invest in lead service line replacement to get a return on their investment? So in other words, people talked about this as, are debated, is there any potential to monetize lead service line replacement? Some people say no. Uh, other people say, let's think about it more. Um, so there's two ways to do this, big picture. One is to find investors that receive a direct financial return from lead service line replacement. So we've talked today about a lot of the benefits, the dangers of lead, and the benefits of reducing lead exposure or the risks of lead exposure. So if you have improved cardiovascular health among your adult age population in your state because you've replaced lead service lines, presumably that reduce Medicaid expenses or Medicare expenses when people are older. Can anyone measure that and be willing to pay for those investments today? 
No one knew the answer to that question, but people wanted to ask it and investigate it more. The second way is to find investors that receive a financial return from activities that can occur alongside lead service line replacement. Again, we don't know what those things are, but you're digging a hole in the ground. So what else can you do when you're digging a hole in the ground and going onto people's property? You're doing outreach. Maybe you talk to people as part of your outreach. Maybe people are going to pay you to talk to people. Hey, ask my question too. I'll give you $100 each time you do it. Or hey, plant a tree. When you plant a tree, it reduces rates of childhood asthma. It reduces my costs as a health insurance company. I'm willing to pay you to plant a tree, plant a tree every fourth time you replace a lead service line. Again, no one came up with any concrete plans on this, um, but many people thought that it was worth at least some communities exploring, and there were conversations among philanthropic organizations and others about how to provide some type of seed money to get people to think really critically about these issues so that communities could learn about the potential for them. The need to get funding to under-resourced communities was emphasized throughout the event and also a focus of remarks by Maureen Cunningham, Chief Strategy Officer at the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. She discusses the role of technical assistance and several resources that are available to help communities. So a few of the barriers uh, in, that we're seeing, and, and I've specifically, I said I would focus, I'm focused a lot on this a state revolving fund program uh, because that's where right now we have 15 billion plus some money to get out the door. Um, I'm gonna be first in line for advocating for more money, but guess what? We gotta spend this money first and we've gotta make it go far. We know, I, I don't like to hear that it's not enough money because we haven't spent it yet. So let's spend it, spend it well, efficiently, equitably, and then ask for more and I'll be the first one to call up Congressman Tyco. Um, so the first problem is accessing the funds. Um, this is not easy. Um, and then on top of that, you're a municipal employee, you've got all those other water problems. It's tough to fill out the application, develop a design, uh, in this case, find and locate your lead service lines because you don't know how many you have. So how do you apply for that funding? So we know this is complex and costly. Another barrier, um, and this uh, is based on the past 10 years before the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was passed, but we know that only a small proportion of our water systems were able to access funding in the past 10 years through the state revolving fund. Um, and even when you put in the population, which is the second pie chart, um, it's still a small percentage of the population. So only 7% of eligible water systems have accessed that funding in the past. So what makes us think putting more money into that system is going to change anything? It's not unless we start working on that. And the last slide um, on the barriers, because um, I am an optimist here, but um, just covering the barriers, um, we just came out with this survey of water systems in southeastern Pennsylvania, interviewing them. They identified many challenges they have, identifying funding sources, preparing applications, conducting community outreach, managing grant and loan money, and so on and so forth. So we know this, this is a barrier. Again, locating lead service lines, putting together a map of your lead service lines, even getting that out to the public is a challenge. 
And a lot of municipalities still have paper tap cards. Um, this is actually, I'm happy to say, one of 5,000 tap cards that we got grant funding to work with 120 Water, who's in the room. Um, and the, the 5,000 tap cards are currently being mailed out somewhere um, to be digitized, but many municipalities have that problem. Um, the dashboard on the bottom, you've seen Newark has a dashboard, a lot of communities do. It's a lot harder for smaller communities. That's Hazelcrest, Illinois, one of the first communities in Illinois to get lead funding from the SRF program, and they are launching a dashboard. So see, these are some of the problems we, we see a lot of municipalities running into. So at Epic, we're trying to change the odds for communities who just can't get this assistance, and we know historically have not been able to get the assistance. We do this through TA, and I'll be focusing a lot on TA more than the other areas, data and research and innovation and policy change. Um, the holy grail, change the policies that create the system. But today I'll focus a lot on uh, the technical assistance piece. Uh, we launched a funding navigator to connect communities to public funds for water infrastructure. I know there's other groups in the room, Moonshot Missions might be here, I saw them on the list, and others um, that are also doing fun what we're calling funding navigator work, connecting communities to this infrastructure funding um, by helping them uh, prepare applications, in some cases trying to find philanthropic dollars to pay technical service providers to do the project designs. Um, so we're among many groups around the country doing this um, work with place-based partners as well. And I'll wrap, kind of wrap it up with the technical assistance, and I think several others have mentioned this, but we have this funding navigator system. Communities can now come to us, press a button on our website, and get connected. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and thank you to this episode's sponsors, Water PIO, Blue Conduit, and 120 Water. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, please visit waterloop.org. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop.